Romans chapter 8, verse 28. This is on page 944, if you have one of the black hardcover Bibles. Romans 8, 28. And as we read, remember, we're reading God's Word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. That's God's Word. You may be seated. It was only one verse. I was trying to drag it out. (laughs) Um, But actually, each of those phrases matter, and we're going to look at those a bit uh, this morning. Think about this for a minute. What would it be like to live without fear? What would your life be like without fear? Now, you might instantly go, I'm not really afraid of much, and I'm not talking sort of boogeyman fear like maybe little kids have. But adult fear, you know, we use other words for fear. We don't want to say we're afraid, so we say we're stressed. Uh, we don't want to say we're afraid, we want to, we, we'll say, I'm a little worried. I'm concerned. What would it be like if your life had no fear? No fear about the future. No fear about how this relationship's going to turn out. No fear about whether that child is going to get turned around. No fear about whether the financial thing is, is or isn't going to make it. What, if, what if in the midst of all that stuff, you could enter into all those circumstances and, and experience all of the, the, the challenge and the, the good stuff, the bad stuff? What if through all of it, you could have no fear, no anxiety, no stress? What would that be like? It would be amazing. It would be influential. I mean, people would notice, right? Because fearless people are influential people. Uh, people would look around and they would go, wow, I, I don't understand how you could live that way because it would be so different. There was a story I was reading this week about a, a boat that traveled from England to, to the New World in the 1740s. It was going from England to Georgia. And uh, most of the people on board were English, uh, but there was a group of about 26 German missionaries that were headed to the New World. And they were there, and, and they're on this boat, and they're, and they're traveling, and, and th- this group of missionaries decide to have a kind of worship service at one point while they're on the ship. Well, the ship begins to experience this incredible turbulence, really rocky. Uh, certain things are falling overboard. Everyone is freaking out and panicking. But th- this group of German missionaries continued with their service. They continued to sing in the midst of it. Well, there was one particular Englishman who saw this and observed this and saw that everyone else was panicking, but the, these German missionaries kept singing, and he, he couldn't get it. He couldn't understand it, and he kept going to them and saying, now, why, why did you keep singing? Why did you keep doing this? And they said, well, because we're not afraid. He said, well, wait, wait, wait. Everything was falling apart. How could you not be afraid? And they said, well, listen, God was with us. We don't have anything to fear. And this Englishman, he just couldn't get it out of his head. Do you know who that Englishman was? John Wesley. Those of you unfamiliar with church history, John Wesley is a key figure in American church history. He is the founder of the Wesleyan or the Methodist movement. He preached the gospel to thousands and thousands of people. He wrote thousands of hymns. And one of the things that first intrigued him about real Christianity was he saw it and he went, these people aren't afraid. Wouldn't it be fun to live like that? One of my favorite comedies is uh, Groundhog Day. 
You ever seen Groundhog Day? That's, that's, I love when it's on TNT. It's one of those, like, I think we own it, but whenever it's on TV, I watch it, you know? It's like, I could put this in, but I'll just watch it on TV. And, and I love, if you don't know Groundhog Day, the premise is this guy, uh, p- played by Bill Murray, is in, uh, he's, he's going to see Punxsutawney Phil, the groundhog that is trying to see his shadow, and he's this really bored sort of uh, news reporter guy, and, and every day is Groundhog Day. It, he, when he wakes up, it's the same day. The same songs playing on the radio again, the same order of things. He runs into the same people on his way to the, to the town square. Just the same thing over and over and over. And, and every day he keeps experiencing it. And one of the things I love about that movie is there's this, there's this point where he realizes, no matter what happens, I'm waking up tomorrow and living this day over again. And I, and I always find that so interesting because then he decides, you know what, I'm going to drive off a cliff. So he drives off a cliff, and he electrocutes himself, and he jumps off a building, and he does all these things that really, wouldn't it be cool to know what it's like to drive off a cliff if you knew you wouldn't be harmed by it? I mean, every guy in the room is like going, yes, that would be like fire. We could think, guys, what could we do with fire and electricity? And I mean, this could be amazing, right? And, and, and what, what motivated that was kind of no fear. I know I'm going to be fine tomorrow. I'll wake up and Sonny and Cher will be on the radio, and here it goes. And I'm not advocating that that we would become sort of careless or silly or um, poor stewards of our lives. I don't mean that kind of fearlessness. But what if you had the confidence that no matter what happens, I'll be okay. That's what this verse is about. That's what this passage that we're going to study today is is about. It's Romans 8, 28. We've been looking all through Romans 8, this discussion really that the the children of God are secure because of the love of Christ, and we we get here to Romans 8, 28, and and we've said along the way, one commentator said that the Bible is like a, it's like a diamond ring, and uh, Romans 8 is like the diamond in the diamond ring, and and Romans 8, 28, you could say, is the sparkle of that diamond. This is when people say, hey, man, I love Romans. It usually means Romans 8, 28. Why? Because Romans 8, 28, if we really get it, has the power to break our fear. Now, if you're here today and you would not consider yourself a Christian, you would say, I'm checking this out. I don't know what I think about all of it. Or maybe you'd go, I'm settled. I don't, I don't believe this. If, if that's you and you feel fear, you feel stress, you feel anxiety in your life, I'm not surprised. You should. Because what else are you banking on? What else are you really leaning on, right? I mean, you're, you're leaning on your own intuition, your own smarts, your own resources, your own strength, maybe the resources of other people around you who at some point will fail. Maybe you're relying on your health, and that's going to fail. Maybe you're relying on money. That'll run out. I mean, if, if, if you're relying on just the world, you don't have God in your life, and you're, you're stressed and fearful, I I get it. You should be. Now, for those of you who would say you're Christians, here's what I don't get. Why are we as Christians still afraid? And and I say we, because I feel fear. I feel anxiety. I feel stress. And what we're going to see today is that that is illogical. The stress we feel, the fear we experience, doesn't make sense. 
And, and yet we still experience it, right? I mean, there's a sense in which if you don't know Christ, hey, you should be afraid. If you do know Christ, nothing should make you afraid. Nothing should make you stressed or worried. And yet it still does for us, doesn't it? I mean, if we can just be honest, right? I mean, everyone here experiences some level of that. And, and so my prayer here today is that God would use this, that we would actually begin to believe it functionally, that it would direct and dictate our lives in such a way that it would break the power that fear and stress and worry has over us. So what I want to do is just dig into this verse. Um, I, I don't have a bunch of separate points today. I just want to kind of go uh, pick this verse apart uh, bit by bit and um, take a look at what it says. Uh, so first, verse 28, these first three words. Uh, well, let me just read the whole verse and then we'll go back to, to, to pick it apart. Verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. First phrase there that I want to look at is, is those first three words, and we know. Doesn't say, and we hope. Doesn't say, and we, uh, we think. It says, and we, we know. Right, I was here at the daddy-daughter date night with a bunch of you and your little girls uh, the other night, and there were games on stage and different things, and my daughters were over there literally, fingers crossed, uh, hoping that they would get called on stage. And, and, and that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's not saying, you know, here's a thing that I, I really hope this is true. He's saying, I know. This is certain. This is fact. You can take this to the bank. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, it's interesting that he says no here because he, Paul realizes we don't know everything. Right? Look at verse 26. In verse 26, he, he said already, we don't always know what to pray for. Right? You're going through pain. You're going through difficulty. Uh, there's times you need wisdom. You, you don't always know what to pray for. Verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He's saying, listen, when you're going through pain, when you're experiencing the, the groaning that everyone on earth is experiencing because of sin, that, that longing for everything to be made new, which he says Jesus is going to do by his Spirit. But, but in the meantime, while we're experiencing that pain and that longing and that groaning, we don't always know what to do, right? We're, we're often uncertain. We need wisdom. We need counsel. It's why I often pray for my daughters. I pray that they would have courage. And I usually pray it like this. God, give them the wisdom to know what's right and the courage to do it, no matter what. The wisdom to know what's right, because we don't always know what to do, and the courage to do it. So Paul isn't saying you know everything, but just because you don't know everything doesn't mean you don't know something. Right? It's very fashionable today to kind of go, well, no one really knows a lot, and, and we want to be humble, and there's all this mystery, and there is a lot of mystery, and there's a lot we don't know, but some things we know. Paul says this is one of them. This is a promise we know. One of my favorite uh, little kind of one-liner quotes is by a friend of mine, a founding pastor of Redemption Gilbert, Tom Schrader. Here's what he said. What you know trumps what you feel. What you know trumps what you feel. It was actually this verse that he was studying when that thought came into his head. And, and he, sh he shared stories before about how uh, this one particular instance where a, a, a lady in the church had just had her husband die in a helicopter crash. He was a pilot. 
And uh, he was there and, and doing what you do in those moments. You just, you just love a person and listen and spend time together. And at some point, um, the lady asked to go for a walk with Tom. She wanted to talk more about it. And, and so Tom asked her basically two questions. He said, what do, what do you feel right now? She said all the things you would expect a grieving widow in that moment to feel. Then he said, what do you know? She talked about God's faithfulness. She talked about how, what a joy it was that her husband had trusted the Lord and was now in his presence. And she talked about the things she knew. And he asked her, can what you know trump what you feel? Not that the feeling is unimportant. Not that the feeling isn't real. But what we know trumps what we feel. See, here's what happens. When, when circumstances are tough and pain is strong, pain is loud, Right? And it, it, it screams at us, right? It's, it's this megaphone. And God often uses it to get our attention, but, but, it, but it's loud and, and the circumstances seem so big and it's hard to see anything beyond it. And the, the question of this passage is, will you let the promise trump the pain? Will you let what you know trump what you feel? So Paul begins and says, this is not wishful thinking. This is rock solid fact. We know something's true. Okay, well, what is it? What do we know? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. We'll come back to that phrase, those who love God, but let's zoom in on that phrase, all things work together for good. Uh, the, the word work together is a Greek word, synergeo. It has that idea of kind of synergy. Things are working together. This is God working things together. God is actively doing that. Uh, our, this ESV translation says, uh, says we know all things work together for good. Other translations will say we know that God works all things together for good. That's really kind of the thrust of this particular passage. It's not that all things magically, kind of on their own through the energy of the universe, work together. No, no, no. God works all things together for good. Think about what this is saying. This is saying we have a big God. Only a big, powerful God could work all things together for good. And only a good God would work all things together for good. Right? Sometimes people go, well, God is good, but I don't know if he's powerful. I don't know if... I know God's good, but I just don't know if he can help me here. And other times people go, well, I know God's powerful, but I don't think he's very good. This passage says he's both. Because he works all things together, he's powerful for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This uh, is the idea that, that God is sovereign, God is in charge, God rules. God is in heaven, he does as he pleases. And, and, and God even uses the actions of people to accomplish his purposes. Theologians would call this the doctrine of concurrence. Concurrence, that concurrently human beings can be doing something and God is working through that action. So let me just give you some examples of this. That, that God is working all things together for good and, and maybe it's easier to think about, you go, oh, well, I can understand the good stuff, but what about the bad stuff? So I want to give you some examples of some places where God is working bad things, people, things that people experience as bad, for good. 
for those who love him. All right, so the first example I want to tell you about is a guy named Joseph. You read about this at the end of the book of Genesis. And Joseph is uh, the, one of the youngest brothers of his 12 brothers, and he's the favorite son of his father. He gets this beautiful multicolored robe and uh, all this extra stuff. He's totally spoiled rotten. It's a really bad deal. And, uh, he, and, and he's proud about it. He's telling his brothers, hey, I had this dream that you were all going to bow down before me. Hey, little brothers, bad idea, right? Don't do that. That's a good way to have your older brothers hate you, right? So that's what happened to Joseph, and they did hate him. And at one point, uh, they're all off, away from, away from dad, and uh, they hatch this idea of going, we hate this brother of ours, let's kill him. They go, and one of the guys goes, eh, I don't know if we should kill him. Why don't we sell him into slavery? Okay, so they, so they sell him into slavery, and they think, hey, we got, you know, we got rid of him. We're not going to see him again. What an amazing turn of God's providence. At years past, you can read the story. It's one of the greatest stories in the scripture. So interesting. But, but, but years pass, and Joseph ends up being, in God's plan, the number two guy in Egypt. He's like the vice president. And uh, part of the reason is because Joseph has had this dream from God where he knows that Egypt is going to experience seven years of bumper crop followed by seven years of famine. And Joseph has this idea. He says, hey, in the years of bumper crop, let's save so that we have some more in the years of famine. Well, he gets put in charge to do that. He runs that, that program effectively to the point where everyone in that part of the country ends up having to come to Egypt and come to Joseph to get food, including his brothers. And the day comes when his dream comes true and his brothers are there knelt before him asking for food and there's a bunch of cool stuff and Joseph reveals that hey I'm your brother and uh and then they're terrified right because they're thinking this guy's probably been hatching revenge for years against us and they finally realize they're in this position of vulnerability and Joseph forgives them and here is his reasoning here's what he says Genesis 50 verse 20 as for you you meant evil against me but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Notice, it doesn't say, you meant it for evil, but God used it for good. As if God's sort of using the raw materials of everyone's actions to build something redemptive out of it. What are you saying? You meant it, you intended it, you purposed it for evil. You really did try to sell me into slavery. And that was really bad. You meant that for evil. And God meant that for good. God had a purpose in it. And Joseph would probably say, and I had no idea what it was, and I'm not sure I even totally know the full purpose of it, but I know he meant it for good. And one of the things it did is it kept many people alive. So that's one example is Joseph. Another example is the story of Job. Or if you're maybe new to the Bible, you might see it and think it says Job. Uh, it's Job, okay? So don't feel bad. Every, we've all made that mistake. Going, hey, Steve Jobs wrote the Bible? Wait a minute. So, so Job is this, again, incredible story. And when you read the book of Job, what you see is that Job is this blameless and righteous man, and, and he, he's doing all kinds of things to serve and honor the Lord. And, and Satan comes to God. We kind of get this window behind the scenes of what's going on. And Satan essentially comes to God and says, God, I don't think Job is that crazy about you. He married you for your money. Take it all away. Take his health away. Take his family away. He'll curse you to your face. 
And God allows Satan to do that. God says, okay, strike him, strike his family. You can even take his health, but don't kill him. Because God is sovereign, right? Satan is on a leash. It's not like God is going, oh no, Satan's going to get Job. God goes, okay, don't kill him. That's the behind the scenes thing. Well, in the scene, everything is just falling apart in Job's life. Job experiences this, and here's what he says in Job 1, 21 and 22. Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You go, wait, 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 Job, the Lord, the Lord gave, the Lord took away? Satan took it away. The band of raiders that killed your kids took it away. What do you mean the Lord took it away? And, and Job knew God is working all things together for good, for me, because I love him and I'm called according to his purpose. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. And the author here says, just to make sure you know, says this, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. God didn't do the evil. But God was working it together for good. So we've looked at Joseph, we've looked at Job. There's one more, Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, born of a virgin without sin, always obeying his heavenly Father, living a perfectly righteous life, an absolutely innocent man, constantly sort of making people rethink all that they had thought was true about religion and faith and God. And yet doing it all consistently in line with what the Old Testament had taught. And people plot against him for years. They finally get a chance and they, he's betrayed by one of his own. He goes through this terrible trial that's just a farce, right? And, and, and all the different people in charge go, this guy hasn't done anything wrong. But, but, but it just keeps, ha- you know, the momentum just keeps building. And eventually Jesus, the truly innocent one, finds himself on a cross hung there, paying the penalty for our sin. Now, now what about that? Here's what Jesus, one of his main apostles, says about this in Acts chapter, 20, chapter 2, verse 22. This is just weeks after this has all taken place. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's concurrence. You killed him. You were lawless. And it wasn't like you just, God made you do it. No, you wanted to do it. You had been plotting for years. You were angry. You were jealous. You were evil. You killed him. By the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God synergistically worked it together for good. So that in the most evil act in history, the most glorious thing in history could be done. God's people could be forgiven of sin. The the sacrificial lamb would take away the sin of the world and we could have access into the throne of grace. At the same time, 
Why? Because God is sovereign even over the evil actions of people. And God is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Let's look at this word good, for good. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. I think this is a challenging phrase for us, isn't it? Because our version of good and God's version of good isn't always the same. Right? My version of good usually involves as much physical comfort as possible, uh, lots of laughter, lots of money, lots of food. You can go on. Everyone thinking I'm wonderful. And it just, that's my version of good. And that's not a funny thing, that's not always God's version of good. And, uh, and so that's a, hard, that's a hard thing. And when it comes to real pain and suffering, one of the things that we have to realize is that it's real pain and suffering, and yet God is still working it for good. I think about Jesus. I think about how in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he was betrayed, he could at the same time pray, Father, if there's any way, please let this cup pass from me. I don't want to endure this pain. This is really going to hurt. And then in the same breath, he could say, but not my will, but yours be done. Why could he say that? It's not because he thought, well, the pain's no big deal. Right, and that's, that's sadly one of the ways that Romans 8.28 gets applied. It kind of has become this bumper sticker coffee mug verse, right, where anytime you're going through something tough, you know, your Christian friends, and I guess they mean well, but it's not helpful. They come to you and they're like, hey, all things work together for good. And you're like, and, and it's not that the problem, the problem's not with the verse, right? The problem's not with the verse. The problem is when we use it as if to say, get over it. Big deal. Didn't hurt that bad. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, I, I'd love, I'd, I'd give anything to have this pass for me. And yet, Father, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to submit to your will because I know that you work all things together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So, so, so we got to have a different definition of good. And, and, and so what is God's purpose? What is God doing? God is trying to make us more into the image of Jesus. And we actually get that. We'll look at this more next week in verse 29. He says, God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What is God's purpose? What is the good that God is doing? God is conforming us to the image of his Son. This promise that God will work all things together for good for those who love him and are called is not a promise that God will do it the way we want. Right? This is another way sometimes people apply this. They'll go, you know what, I, uh, I, I really wanted this job, but I didn't get it. Um, but you know, God works all things together for good. There's a better job for me waiting. Or someone will go, you know, I really I was dating this girl, and I really thought she was the one, and it fell apart. And you know what, but, but God works all things together for good. There's a better girl out there for me. Maybe not. This is not what he's promising. There may be a worse job. There may be no girl. Right? You, you, 
the promise that God will work something together for good doesn't always mean that you're going to end up the second in charge in Egypt. Sometimes it means you're going to end up on a cross. So, so, so just be careful about thinking, well, it, it, means, it means what I want. No, it means God is making you more in the image of his son. Now, now think about what that means for a second. What does it mean to be more like Jesus? It means to be more loving, more gracious, more kind, more patient, more goodness in your heart, more gratitude, more generosity. That's what it is to be more like Jesus. Don't you want that? In fact, you want that so bad that that's what you're actually trusting all the other circumstances to give you. The reason why you love comfort and you love food and you love laughter and you love all those things that we all love is because we think that's mostly what we need. And God is saying, sometimes I'm going to give you that and I'm going to even use the good stuff to make you more like Jesus. And sometimes I'm going to give you the stuff that you don't like at all to make you more like Jesus, to give you what you really need to conform you to the image of my son. Here's what Tim Keller says. He says, Jesus Christ did not suffer so that you would not suffer, but so when you suffer, you'll become like him. One pastor has said it this way, God doesn't promise you better circumstances, he he promises a better life. It may not all work out the way you want. God's version of good and your version of good might not be the same, but in the end, he's making you more like Jesus, more loving, more generous, more gracious, more compassionate, more fearless, less worried. It's what you want. God is working all things together for good. Zoom in on this phrase, all things. All things? God's working all things together for good? I mean, I mean, think about how comprehensive that is, right? This is not most things. This is not just the spiritual things. All things. And in the Greek, this word means all things. That was supposed to be a joke. <laughs> it's like, that's what it is. It's everything, right? God works all things. And, and, and part of you goes, if you're honest, I mean, if you think about this, at all very hard, you're going, really? All things? And I, I mean, I think of two categories. First category is, what about all of my suffering? Second, what about all of my sin? So start with suffering. I don't know what the worst thing that's happened to you is. We could go around and share and try to one-up each other. It'd be bad. I mean, there'd be a lot of bad. There's a lot of pain in this room. There's a lot of pain in our world. And it's not small. It's really a big deal. There are people who have endured years of really hard marriages. And some that failed. And that was just the most painful thing in the world. Others have experienced the loss of a child. I can't imagine much worse than that. Some of you as children, when you were innocent, were abused. You were taken advantage of. People who were supposed to protect you hurt you. We could go on and on. But, but really? 
All things? Yes, all things. You go, well, how, wait a minute. How could that be true? How could you say that all things, even that abuse that happened to me that I never deserved, how can you say all things are working together for good? Here's, here's listen, I can't tell you exactly what God's purpose was in it. I can't tell you all the reasons it happened. But, but I can tell you that we know that all things work together for good. How can I know that? Not just because it says it, though that's enough, but, but also Jesus demonstrates it. Think about this. Jesus is the truly innocent sufferer. Jesus deserved nothing but honor and praise and comfort and goodness. And so Jesus knows what it is to be abused when you don't deserve it. Jesus knows what it is to be abandoned. Jesus knows what it is to lose close friends. Jesus knows that pain, and not just like from a distance. He's lived it. He's experienced it. And so listen, if he has experienced it, and he knows how bad it hurts, and he has still allowed it to happen in your life, he must have a good reason. So I don't know what the reason is exactly. If I could go back and undo that for you, I would. But if Jesus knows what it's like and still lets it happen, he must have a good reason. So yes, even suffering, God works together for good. What about sin? What about our sin? Think about it. I mean, can our sin undo this? No, not at all. I love this quote by Ray Ortland. He says this, can I sin my way out of the saving purpose of God? He says, I can easily sin my way out of a clear conscience, out of the assurance of my salvation, out of my ministry, out of my marriage, my children's respect, financial solvency, a good reputation, my health. I can easily sin my way into disgrace and heartache and a sexually transmitted disease and bankruptcy and mediocrity and tragic inconsequentiality. But I cannot sin my way out of the purpose of God. Because my sin is the very thing his saving purpose most intentionally redeems. You can do all kinds of ways to hurt yourself. You can do that. Right? This is not a quote that says, go out there and sin it up. What it is saying, though, is your failure is not fatal. You, you, think about this. You can't thwart the purpose of God in your life. That's an amazing thing. Even if you tried to run from God, if you're his child, he's going to get you. He's going to come back. He's going to draw you in. Even if you run away, his love never fails. It's amazing. So yes, all things. God works all things together for good. But, but listen, and this is uh, hopefully brief, this promise isn't for everybody. I, I wish it was be great to be able to say, hey, for every person in the world, God is going to work all things together for their good. But that's not what the verse says. The verse says that God works all things together for good for those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's the same thing. It's not, it's not two different things. Those who love God are those who are called according to his purpose. And those who are called according to his purpose are those who love God. Now think about this. Here's what I think is interesting quickly about, about love is 
we don't just love intellectually and we don't just love sentimentally and we don't just love with our actions and our duty, our volition, our will. Love is all of those things, right? So think about this. Do you love God? And I ask that not to discourage you, not to make you go, oh, maybe I don't. But, if, I mean, if you don't, I'd love you to think that. But think about it. Do you love God? Like in your mind, you go, man, it's just amazing who God is. In your, in, in your emotions, is there a sense where you go, oh, God's amazing? Not all the time, but is there sometimes in you just going, oh, I love him. And then with your will, are you increasingly interested in obeying him? Are you doing that? Right? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Do you love God? So a lot of times, and, and we'll, we'll look in the next few weeks more about what it means to be called according to God's purpose. And a lot of you will get kind of tied up in knots over some of that, and I get it. But one of the things that, that I just will point you back to is to go, do you love God? If you love God, you're called according to his purpose. And this is true for you. If you don't love God, there is, this is not a guarantee for you. And if you continue on and, and you never come to a saving trust in God, then in a sense, God is working all things for your bad. N- not, it's just how it is. I mean, in a sense, for those who are Christians, this is as close to hell as we're ever going to be. And for those who remain non-Christians, this is as close to heaven. His promise is for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So I want to close with three questions. I just want to have you kind of think about this. First question is this. Are you one of God's children? Do you love him? Have you experienced his calling, saving grace in your life? The second question is this. How much are you willing to endure to become more like Jesus? See, becoming a Christian, you don't get any rights. Right? You can't go to God. That's why everyone wants salvation to be by works, right? Because if you work, you're a taxpayer and you have rights and you can go to God and say, hey God, I I paid my dues. You owe me. But, But we receive sheer grace. So God owes us nothing. How much are we willing to endure to become more like Jesus. Some of you, if I just asked you, do you want to become more like Jesus? You'd say, oh, I'd give anything. Really? Because you might. You might not, but you might. And here's the third thing, your third question. Will you trust him? Will you trust God? Not should you trust God. You clearly should. He's working all things together for your good. Not can you trust God. Of course you can. He can take even the crucifixion of the Son of God and work it out to his glorious purposes. The question is, will you trust him? Some of you know, last summer I went through just what for me was as close to kind of just some dark days as I had had in terms of, I don't know if it was depression or not or what, but, you know, I had had some rough times. and, and, um, And I didn't feel very good. And I didn't feel very happy, but, but I knew in the midst of it, God's doing something here. He's working this for my good. I'm going to become more like Jesus. And that didn't make it feel better. If you're going through suffering right now, I can't do a lot that's going to make it feel better. But it did help me endure. It did help me keep going. It did help me just hang in there. 
And so if you're in that pain right now, hang in there because God is working all things together for good for those who love him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for that truth. Father, I pray that you would give us faith so that what we know could trump what we feel. God, thank you for um, what you show us in Christ is that if you didn't spare your own son, then surely you'll give us all things with him. So God, thank you for that. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. We're going to take some time now and respond. Um, And actually, communion is is a perfect picture of what Luke just talked about.